Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hey folks, this is Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. Super stoked to have you here today. If you like this podcast, please go rate us on iTunes. And we're starting to do new video podcasts. So if you're watching this on video, you already know that. But if you aren't, then go to my YouTube channel, Mark Devine, and you'll see this on YouTube now. I'm super stoked to be in studio here for the first time, new studio up in Beverly Hills, California. And my guest today is Tom Jones. How are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, man. Tom, so Tom is, I'm, I'm just going to let Tom, let the show kind of introduce Tom. And you can see in the, in the notes, such a unique individual. You know, I, when we first uh, met, I was uh, impressed by a couple things. One is just how you've trained your human body, your body, to do things that most people think are impossible. And then two, just the humility, you know, just being someone who, who really doesn't give a shit about that, but will do it just because you've got a mission. Right. So you're a man with a mission. So what is your mission? Tom? To, to be better, better people after having contact with me than before. Right. Uh, and whatever that means to them, you know, and Pushing my mind and my body beyond what most most people think is possible is is an interesting concept because to me I, I have no limits on myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't have limiting beliefs, especially physically. I do have limiting beliefs, but I'm working against them to to get rid of them all the time. Right. And you know, I never didn't believe that I couldn't do something. That thought never entered my mind. Um, I just did it and then went and figured out the how along the way. Right. So to me, as long as my why was strong enough, the how, I just went and figured that out along the way. Yeah, I like that. So your why was heavily influenced, as with most people, by your childhood, which sounded pretty challenging. So can you, you know, just give us a sense of what that was like and uh, how that forged your quip-proof attitude, you know, this, this person that, that grew out of that hardship. Yeah, it's, my childhood was pretty much robbed from me. Uh, my father had cancer, kidney disease, tuberculosis at the same time, and a real bad attitude. And my mother was... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I would probably have a bad attitude, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And people, I mean, I've been in interviews and, they're, and they're, you know, do you blame him? No, I don't blame him. I only hope that I would do better faced with the same circumstances as him. So he had those uh, physical challenges. And my mother was clinically mentally insane, meaning that like literally insane. She had her uh, mind uh, electronically erased. They tried to reprogram it in. Good God. She's tried to kill That's herself. A thing? Oh yeah. Yeah, they electrically shock. Like you frontal s- lobotomy kind of thing? Or? It, it, it's done with electricity. They kind of erase your mind and they re-plug in stuff that they want you to have in there. Mm. I don't really fully understand it because I didn't really understand it when I was a kid either. 
my mom was very unavailable mentally, um, tried to kill me on three separate occasions because God told her to, when she had other children too. And for some reason, God told her to kill me first all three times. Good. Oh. <laughs> Later on in life, when she, I took care of my mom before she died. And uh, as long as she was on her medication, she was okay. And one time I asked her, I said, are you sure that God told you to kill me like first all three times? And she goes, absolutely. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what, what age were you when all this was happening? Uh, well, I was, it was like six years old and above that I can remember. Okay. Um, so you don't remember it. You know, the, what I've learned is a lot of the abuse, the, a lot of the impact of the abuse is actually experienced in the first, you know, three, four years of one's life. So that's shape. They say the first five years shapes the next 95. Yeah. Especially if you can't remember anything in the first five years, that means it was probably not good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember a, a lot of it. I do remember things you know it was terrible i remember that uh just scared all the time uh very insecure we moved uh 35 times from the time i was born until the time i was removed from my home by the state of california when i was 12 years old for child abuse so uh, it was bad yeah um like i said fear all the time un uh, unstable insecure and I think that the one thing that I take away from that is that taught me to be a survivor. Right. You know, I learned how to survive under those types of circumstances. When I was 12 years old, the police knocked on the door and told me I had to come with them. And uh, I was placed in a children's institution, not like a foster home, but an institution. And that institution, it was almost like going from the fire, frying pan into the fire, mm. oddly enough, right? Uh, you're hoping that you're going from the fire to the frying pan if you're removed from your home and placed into an institution. Someone but, who cares for you and, and well, yeah, some structure and stability. But yeah. That wasn't the case? No, they were pedophiles. Oh, my God. So I was a victim of that until I ran away from the institution when I was 17 years old. Um, and it's very interesting because the institution is one of the biggest and most powerful organizations on earth. It was a Masonic home for children, the Masons, the Freemasons. Are you kidding me? No. Whoa. So in 2007, um, I actually shut the children's home down legally. Mm. And I took them to court and shut them down. And they found uh, 30 other kids over a 20-year history that were severely uh, abused sexually. And obviously, that translates into mentally. Right. And when I was in that home, also, that it was an institution, again, and that institution had kids all the way from infant until 18 years old. So when I went in at 12 years old, I was automatically facing two or three 16-year-olds who wanted to beat me up, or 17-year-olds or 18-year-olds. So um, I was in martial arts since I was three. That was one of the things that my dad did put me in that was really helpful and useful, especially right. when I got to the children's home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found a martial arts studio that was close, and pretty much stayed there a lot of the time mm -hmm. and just kept practicing martial arts, martial arts, martial arts, and actually used that to defend myself in the children's home. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't used to sexual predators. I was only used to like physical predators. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they beat the shit out of you type thing. That I was very familiar with, but sexual predators, no. Uh, Cause they're- I don't think anyone's used to sexual predators. No, <laughs> used to the way that they approach people. Like my dad would walk in and beat the crap out of everything. Mm -hmm. They're more like the serpent. They're seductive, yeah. Yeah, so that's, uh, that was a different 
-hmm. type of abuse that I had no uh, familiarity with. So at 17, I ran away from that and I ended up joining the Marine Corps. Because the Marine Corps was the only organization in the military that would take somebody with Did you have that idea in your head, like, when I'm 17, I'm going to go to the Marine Corps? Or... Mm -mm. I just did it. I ran away. I started living on the street. And then somebody suggested that I ought to go check out the military. And as I was checking the military out, the Marine Corps was the only one that would take. Because of moving around so much when I was young and then being not available when I was in the children's home doing stuff that no child should do, I only ended up with a sixth grade literal education. Mm. So I had no education, I had no proper upbringing, so I joined the Marine Corps, they, the only ones that would take me. And uh, when I joined the Marine Corps, it was refreshing that I was in a place where they meant what they said and they said what they meant, right? Because child molesters don't do that. Um, and that I got rewarded for doing things that were expected of me, mm -hmm. right? So I ended up graduating number one mm -hmm. out of 3,000 people in boot camp. Mm -hmm. And so I was an honor graduate. So Plus, uh, to be fair, you, you really couldn't be hurt by them. No, I've noticed not. that. I, I think you and I talked about that, like how, yeah. you know, military actually people who have been abusive, in abusive childhoods actually do really well in the military because they, that structure they're craving. And emotionally, you know, they've, they've got a pretty narrow range and they deal with pain very well. And I was already institutionalized, right? Because right? I was in a children's institution where we actually ate in a chow hall. Right. We had an infirmary. So all that right? stuff so all that stuff. To you. And I had, didn't have, miss my mommy and daddy. They were gone a long time ago. So the military was perfect in, in, in those respects. And again, you know, if I did what I was expected to me and I exceeded that, mm -hmm. I was rewarded for it. So, and all Were my you clothes inspired um, to lead, you know, to get into, this, into the leading of other individuals at, in, the mil, in the Marine Corps? No. In fact, when I graduated number, if there's any regrets that I have, because I've been asked that question before, I said, yeah, when I graduated number one out of boot camp, they offered me to go to officer school. Mm. And I had been indoctrinated to be an enlisted person in boot camp, so they hammered it in, you know, officers are bad and enlisted is good. And so I declined to do that, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that I made overall. Right, uh, interesting. So um, I, I ended up in the Marine Corps, and they taught me about, they did teach me about leadership, integrity, esprit de corps, being part of a team, being part of something bigger and different than myself. And it was a really good experience for me uh, in all of those regards. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't until after the Marine Corps that you learned you had a, a passion for, well, you, had, you ended up getting a passion for MMA-style fighting, right, for competition fighting. And then that led into you know, more of the endurance sports. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into that and what led to that after the Marine Corps. Well, I, uh, in the Marine Corps, I, I had been in martial arts tournaments most of my life, right? Okay. When I got into the Marine Corps, I um, had a child when I was in the Marine Corps and I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to have my child, see my child born. So I was trying to figure out how to make money to fly my wife over to have my child born over there. Mm -hmm. And in Okinawa, you could fight in bars. It was like a tough man contest. Winner take all, loser take an ass beating. Right? <laughs> I'm not really? Right. So I, I started doing that. That's cool. Huh? And I won enough money to have my, my 
wife at the time flown over and I, and I saw my child born. And um, when I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, I couldn't, wasn't, it wasn't working, you know what I mean? So I started, uh, I started fighting again. And um, one of the things that uh, I did when I, was, when I got out of the Marine Corps is I moved to Huntington Beach, California. Mm. Well, when I was in the Marine Corps in South Carolina, there was a Chuck Norris uh, martial arts school. It was the only one in town. Mm -hmm. So I joined that and I actually became friends with Chuck Norris while I was in the Marine Corps at that school. Did he teach at the school or just come out for cameo uh, appearances? Cameo appearances. Oh, interesting. So, and I was really, really, really good at martial arts by that time because I had spent from the time I was three years old all the way into this. Was, was it a particular martial art, like Muay Thai, or was it just a... Not at that time. A mix of things. It was just a mix of things. So Chuck Norris School was the only school there. I ended up uh, staying in that school for a year, went to Okinawa, started like actually really fighting. Mm -hmm. But for me, it wasn't anything new because I did that in the children's home. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, only against like one person when I fought <laughs> other than the children's home. Right. So, um, and then, I moved to Huntington Beach when I got out of the children's home and there was a Chuck Norris school in Huntington Beach. Okay. So I joined that because I was familiar with it. And the guy that ran that school kept it really quiet, but he was Chuck Norris's cousin. So he came up to me one day and said, hey, um, Chuck Norris is looking for doorman at his uh, restaurant and bar in Newport Beach, Woody's Wharf, are you interested? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, anything to get next to him, let's do it. So I went and I was a doorman there, and within three months of being a doorman there, I was Chuck Norris's training partner, driving to his house every single day. He made me general manager of the restaurant, mostly because I think he knew I was the only one he could trust not to rip him off or whatever. <laughs> so I started to work for Chuck Norris in, in that uh, capacity. Mm -hmm. And Chuck is an amazing human being. Yeah, what, what was he like? Just give us some of his personality quirks and. Chuck is awesome. I mean, when he asked me, you know, do you want to come and work out with me? And I was like, that's like Batman asking you if you want to like come be his crime fighting buddy. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh yes. I love that. So um, Chuck was a really down to earth, per is a really down to earth person. He's a really trustworthy person. He has all the character traits, you know, that are that of a person that's a stand up person, didn't cheat on his wife, all the rest of this stuff always treated me like gold. He used to call me up in the middle of the day and go, hey, do you want to go like uh, have lunch with Marvelous Marvin Hagler? I was like, who doesn't? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, um, and he was a great role model in as much as a lot of what Chuck did on his off time was, for example, Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is a foundation that gives wishes to children that have terminally ill uh, mm -hmm. circumstances. And he would, a lot of the children wanted to meet Chuck Norris. Well, he would go and meet them. He was real, real philanthropic that way. Mm -hmm. And that rubbed off on me. And I really didn't realize it at the time, but it did rub off on me. Mm -hmm. And so he ended up, uh, unfortunately, getting a divorce from the wife that he was married to at that time. And he moved to Texas. and. I remember him asking me if I wanted to go with him, and I said, no. I said, if I'm gonna go to the top, I don't want it to be on your coattails. Mm -hmm. Like, so, but it's been great. We kept in touch, and so on and so forth. But Chuck oh. is one of the best solid people that- Tell me about your first encounter uh, with fight with Chuck, yeah, training. Well, my first sparring thing with Chuck Norris was um, we touched gloves, and I literally, like the very first move I did, or the very first move of the sparring match was, I kicked him flush in the face, like whack, <laughs> right? Wow. And he just like looked at me and he's like, 
so it's going to be like that, huh? And I was like, well, like, you're kind of like Chuck Norris. And I <laughs> thought we were like sparring. And he goes, oh, we are. You know, so we touched gloves again. And I like worship this guy. And for me not to like be expecting this or know this is kind of odd. But he was coined for spinning behind himself and doing a spinning back kick, right? And uh, so we touched gloves again. He moved in really close to me and did a spinning back kick, hit me right in the solar plexus. And I was just like, eh, <laughs> boom, hit the ground, right? And so that was sort of the start of a great relationship. Uh, and I love that. So most great relationships don't start with people beating the crap out of each other. I put a red mark on move. his face like you wouldn't believe, man. <laughs> you just seeing the look on his face. And one of the other things, before we move on, I was talking about Chuck, was an honest, very humble person, right? And I think that rubbed off too because I asked him one time, I said, how did you get the part that was like across from Bruce Lee? He goes, you don't want to know. I go, well, sure I do. Like, how did you get that? How did they choose you? He goes, well, you really don't want to know. I go, no, please tell me. He goes, well, there was five martial artists in the world that were good enough at the time. He goes, out of those five, I was the only one that didn't have dark hair, dark eyes, and wasn't dark complected. <laughs> I was the only one that had blue eyes, fair skin, strawberry blonde hair. And I go, and that's it? He goes, that's it. That's the reason they chose me. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> that's cool. So... Um, Tell us about your, your MMA career. What were the, the biggest lessons and what was the kind of the, high, the highs and the lows of that fighting career? Uh, the highs of it were just winning a lot. You know, you win like world titles. You know, yeah, I, I, won, uh, I won seven major titles all together <coughs> in Thai boxing. I lived in Thailand for a total of about two years. And um, Thai boxing uh, is, is no joke. I remember um, going to Thailand with SEAL Team 3. And they took the military champion, they brought him uh, to us, and he was teaching us stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Can you imagine how that went? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, didn't, we weren't able to walk for like three days because he just destroyed our legs. Legs, yeah. Yeah, it's like chopping down the tree was the whole idea. Right? Yep. Take out the legs, and then what are you going to fight on? You know, no yep. foundation left. Can't stand, can't fight. Right. So, so you learned how to do that. that I learned how to do that. And I, the way I got into it was I was fighting tournament fighting, and I watched one of the very first fights on television with a guy named uh, Rick Rufus, who was like one of our champion gladiator guys. Mm -hmm. They had a guy from Thailand come over that was either two or three weight divisions below him. Mm -hmm. And they had to carry Rick out on a stretcher in the 10th round. And I go, I want to do that. Wow. I go, I want to learn that. Mm -hmm. And so that's sort of how I even found out about it and got interested in it. Then there was only one guy that taught it in my area, and they called him Mr. Sacrifice because he'd throw you in with anybody. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I ended up being 19 and 2 as an amateur, uh, and as a pro, I, I won 54, I lost 4. Wow. So it was a really great record, a great ride. Did you make any money doing that as a person? At that time, no. No. If I was fighting now, I'd be like yeah. king of the hill. Right. I mean, so uh, did it just because I was angry inside. I was still pretty disturbed inside, and I got to beat the shit out of people and didn't go to jail, and they paid me a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair so enough. So it works, you know? And what, what about the lows? Like, what was the low point of that whole? The lows were just not feeling real fulfilled inside myself. Mm -hmm. It was like being Darth Vader, you know what I mean? You're just mm -hmm. destroying people, feeling good for a second, and then going back to being sort of empty and so on and so forth. And uh, I ended up, while I was fighting, I met a guy that owned the largest computer memory vending company in the world. 
and I ended up being his bodyguard and his personal trainer at the same time I was fighting. And he was another great um, influence in my life. He was another good man, treated people really good. I traveled the world with this guy. And one of the things that he did was he had a sales force of a couple hundred people and he would bring motivational speakers in like Lou Holtz, Pat Riley, really, really top level motivational speakers in. And I would just be like enthralled with these people because I had no manual of how to live my life. Soaking up so I was soaking up, yeah, that information. So in 1998, I decided that I was gonna like do something to help other people. And I was like, well, I can't go beat the shit out of people to help people, what am I gonna do? You know, and I was running to train for a fight at the time and I go, you know what, I know. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our US-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. So this guy takes you around the world and you start soaking up wisdom from the motivational speakers. Yeah. And it starts to have an impact on you. It starts to have an impact on me. Like, I need to, I, I started feeling guilty that I had come from this life of uh, being an abused and neglected child, foster care system, all this stuff. And I literally just turned my back on it completely. And mm. I just like shut it out of my life. And so I sort of felt like I, I needed to go and I needed to use my story to inspire kids not to be losers and be burdens on society because that's what they're supposed to be. Did anyone help you kind of craft that idea or did that just kind of come to you? Just came to me. That's cool. Yeah, it just came to me. And then when I was running to train for a world title fight, um, I had an epiphany. I was like, I'm gonna run a long way and I'm gonna like run like extreme distances every day during that long way so that people will go, why in the hell are you doing that? Right, and that would give me that moment of their attention to like tell my story, and so one of the things that I did uh, in 1998, I ran from Oregon to Mexico on foot, and it was at a pace of a marathon a day every day. Right. <laughs> Wait a second. Let's just say that again. <laughs> you ran from Oregon to the Mexican border with a marathon every day. 26.2 miles a day every day. Okay, so. Um, on the way up here, my son and I were talking about this logistically. Like, ha, did you like just pull over to the side of the road and pitch a tent? Or did you like run from hotel to hotel? Like, oh, great question. So the way <laughs> that I work? did it was, you're gonna, lo- you're gonna love this. So the way that I did it was I was thinking to myself, how in the hell am I gonna do this logistically, right? Because it's a logistic nightmare. Well, actually while I was thinking about that, the TV show MASH was going on, mm-hmm. right? And that's, that episode's how, what I, when I learned what MASH actually means. It means Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Right. Right? So they're getting bombed, right? And they go, well, we got to pick up and move down the road. So they picked all their stuff up, their whole camp, and they moved like 10 or 15 miles down the road. And I go, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Just like that. So we got a motorhome, used it as base camp, parked it like 100 miles south of the border, used a pace car to shuttle me to the point that I left off every day. As soon as I ran 100 miles past it, we just leapfrogged the motorhome 100 miles past it and kept doing it all over again. Oh, I see. Interesting. So that's how I ended up doing it. So let's back up a little bit. You have this idea you're going to run 26 miles a day. There was no part of you that thought that that was crazy? 
Everybody thought it was crazy. It wasn't, <laughs> I'm talking about you. Of course, oh, everyone oh, thought no. it was crazy. I was the only one that didn't think it was crazy. crazy. Like, no. like, I was. You said, "Hey, Mark, will you go run 26 miles yeah. tomorrow." I'd be like, "Nah, I don't have to think hard about that." But every day for how many long, how many days did it take? Uh, well, the first time was uh, less than 90 days. But when I ran across the nation, because that's what I wanted to do originally, was run across North America. Mm-hmm. But that was like nobody would give me. They're like, "Oh hell no, nobody can do that, right?" <laughs> So what I decided to do was spoon feed it to him. I go, well, then what am I going to do? I'm going to spoon feed it to him. I'll Who's run them? to California. Them was, was sponsors people, or yeah, people that I was approaching for money to do this. Right. Uh, so I I could convince them that I could do California, and it's mostly because of the the major titles that I had fighting. You know, if, if you can do that, then you could probably do that. But you probably can't do that. But we'll go ahead and. So in California, you ran like 90 marathons. Yeah, I forget exactly how many it it was. Because, see, my ability was this. They were like, how did you do it? And I was like, well, in my mind, still to this day, I only ran one marathon. That's it, just one. Because I was able to shut the one off before and didn't think about the one tomorrow and have the blinders on, and the only marathon I ran was the one. Right. You know, and that's how I made it across North America, too. That and my why. So my why was I wanted to buy a playground for a children's home that was in my area that the kids could like bounce off and not get hurt. It was like one of the new playgrounds that had the foam mm-hmm. floor and all the rest of that stuff. And the other thing that I wanted to do is again, share my story. So I stopped at children's homes along the route and mm-hmm. told my story and tried to inspire kids to, you know, to be winners, to, to not accept what they've been dealt with and, and make it what they've been dealt with. So you had that to motivate you every day. You did that after the ride or after the run or mm-hmm. was it sometimes during it? I mean, No, after. Run, you ran consecutively 26 miles. Oh, and then sometimes I drive more than 100 miles to a children's facility, do a motivational speaking event, drive 100 miles back, and then do it all over again. Let's talk about the physical aspect of that. First, when you started, like the first few days, what did your body go through and what did your mind go through to, to try to adjust to this new reality? <laughs> hell uh, in a handbag. Just, hell, in just hell. hell on steroids. I mean, so the only agreement that I made to myself when I ran was if I could physically put, pick my foot up and actually put it down in front of the other foot, I wouldn't quit, right? Mm-hmm. And so physically, it was brutal. I mean, I had to soak my, my legs and feet uh, in five-gallon buckets that had one-quarter ice, two-thirds water, every single day. And I don't know if you want to challenge yourself, give that a try with one leg, much less two at the same time. Uh, The nutrition, I had to figure out how to take in like 6,000 plus calories a day. Um, What What did you eat, by the way, for that? Well, I ended up, we were trying to figure it out. So the guy that I brought along with me uh, was one of my team members, was a guy that trained me Muay Thai. I actually flew this guy from Thailand because he was so famous and, and so on for, for fighters, flew him over to train me to fight. And he ended up helping me on the runs because he did chiropractic, massage. Um, he, he was amazing. He was one of, still is one of the best cooks ever. I mean, when I wasn't suffering, I was living like a king big time. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so just lots of real good food. Yeah, and then we were trying to figure out how we're going to take in. So that you had a mobile college. cook yeah. kit and your mobile mobile tent yeah. and everything. Okay. Yeah, he took care of all that. Took care of all that. Yeah, we were trying to figure out how I was going to take in all that food. He's he's like, you have to drink it. Right. I was like, what do you mean? He so we blended and drank my fruits and vegetables. So all that was we drank all that, all the meat that he did minced it up so that my digestive system didn't have to like work overtime to digest it. Right. 
And so we got all those calories a day in. And then, like I said, mentally, I just decided that if I could actually pick my foot up and put it in front of the other foot, I wouldn't quit. I can't tell you how many times I sat on the road and cried my eyes out and goes, whose freaking idea was this anyway? This sucks. This straight up sucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'd be crying like When you did that, I literally went there yeah. to the side of the road. I would be crying like, and going, this fucking sucks. I'm out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody can fucking see me. There's roadkill everywhere. Like, this was not a good idea. <laughs> this is a bad, bad idea. Bad, bad. So, and but, then, but you got up and put your foot because up. Because I knew that I actually could. And then by the time I actually ran across North America, I would like dispense with that and go, oh, screw it, man. I'm just going to keep running. I'm going to like not do the half-hour cry session. I used to be impressed with Goggins, David Goggins, and yeah. his story. But now that pales in comparison to what you just described. Yeah. That's because he, you take the ultra marathons, and I, I mean, 3,170 miles is what I ran before I ran the New York Marathon. And they're like, wait a minute, you like <laughs> ran to New York on foot to run the New York Marathon? <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so sleep is incredibly important. What time did you try to get to bed every night, and how many hours of sleep were you getting during this event? Absolutely. So when I got back from running, I would take nutrition that he would give me get a massage, and go down and completely out. Sometimes, right after the run? Okay. Right after the run. And well, then you would go talk to the kids, or are you saying Well, after? on the days that I didn't go talk to the kids. On oh, the right. days I did go talk to the kids, I would go talk to the kids, come back, and then die, right? Uh, and, and so I rested a lot of the time that I wasn't actually running or doing these appearances. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of rest involved uh, as far as that went. But some of the days were really, really difficult because... I would run, I would go to the children's home, I would come back, then we'd have to leapfrog the motorhome another 100 miles down the road. Mm -hmm. Those days were brutal. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that was like 14, 15 hour days. Uh, and, and again, it's just like, in the mental seat, I'm, I was perfectly suited for that mentally. Mm -hmm. I was the king of suffering. I, I could take hard as the, the harder, the more comfortable I am. <laughs> you know, I had to get used to like actually having a functional life peaceful life, mm -hmm. not self-sabotaging, mm -hmm. not, you know what I mean? All the, the more things, calm things got, the more un uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Oof. So at what point, let's say in your first run down the California coast, did your body, mind, system finally go, okay, we got this, this is the new normal? So my Thai trainer says it best. He says, Tom, make it seven days, make all. One week of total resistance, what yeah. the hell am I doing? My, your body's going crazy, yeah. and then suddenly it changes. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, when I ran across North America, I, when I got to New York, I straight up stopped, and then I got on an airplane and flew home after the New York Marathon. I got really sick, like physically ill, because my body was used to that, and I went from that to nothing. So that's really interesting. In fact, that reminds me, I just had a friend who did um, the workout Murph mm -hmm. for, for 365 days every day. Yeah. And he even, he even got COVID in the middle of it. Oh, wow. So he, he, he trained every, every day. He yeah. had, you know, we, we had COVID. He pushed through it. He said it was miserable. That was the hard point. But on the last day, I, you know, a bunch of us did it with him to kind of honor it. And he was doing it for charity. And, you know, mm -hmm. the same thing. He had a strong why. It's not the same as running a marathon every day, but you know, Murph is not an insignificant workout with body armor too. But he said, um, I said, are you gonna, you know, tomorrow, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna just stop cold turkey? Because no, tomorrow I'm gonna do Murph. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nice. That makes sense. Because it's like you got to slow the sp- the flywheel down. Yeah. Or else your body will go into some shock. Sort of shock. Yeah. yeah. So that's what happened to you. Yeah. It went straight into shock. Uh, I got super sick. Threw up constantly. I mean, it was bad for about a week. Interesting. Uh, for my body to get readjusted with that, and mentally it was also um, difficult. Mm-hmm. I almost didn't know what to do with myself. I was like, Yeah, I was going to wonder about that. So. After having those experiences, do you have to do something like ridiculously hard every day? Yes, pretty much. Uh, it, and, and how hard is it when you do something like this, where like your day's taken up, like oh, I got to get to a studio because I'm doing this podcast with Mark, and does that mean you're going to go home and do like ten thousand push-ups or what? Well, like you? you know, usually I get up early, I do burpees in the morning and work out and all that, and then after. Uh, in the afternoon, I'm now hydrofoiling on a hydrofoil board because my next quit-proof quest is to set the world record on hydrofoil boards, same as I did on stand-up paddleboard in 2007. Is that, is that a surfboard? Or is a hydrofoil board is like a surfboard, but it has a three-foot fin on it yeah. that has a fin on the bottom. Yeah, I've seen surfers, so you, and I've seen... Eyes up above the water. I saw Laird, I know you've trained with Laird yeah. Hamilton, but I saw the image of him hydrofoiling like almost forever on this really long yeah. wave in, in uh, Hawaii. So are you paddle hydroboarding? I mean, well, I'm not 100% sure yet. So I have an uh, electric hydrofoil board right now from Lyft uh, electric hydrofoil boards that sponsored the board, and it has a hand controller. It has a motor on the back of the, that large fin down below, so that thing propels you. Uh, but the thing, like you're saying, with hydrofoil is you can keep up with the speed of the wave. Right. So, and when your board's off the water, it has very little drag, right? So you can literally ride like one wave as long as you can stand up and stand on it and stay on the wave. So, I mean, theoretically, you could ride a wave all the way from Oregon to Mexico if you could stay on that wave that long. Yeah, but there's no waves that are that long. No, no. And well, I <laughs> so you're always going to be going up, down, up, down, yeah. up, down. Yeah, and then you just wait and catch the next one. So I'm not exactly sure whether I'm going to use an electric hydrofoil board, whether I'm going to have a smaller boat tow me into waves along the way. But you're not uh, going to be on the water for the whole time, are you? No, do the same as I did when I did the stand-up paddleboard world record in 2007. Same so as was running. Let's talk about the logistics for that, because I'm kind of curious about it. Same that. thing. I had a motorhome, parked it. We had two wave runners. We'd take them out, and they were like my pace car. And, um, you know, I had one... One wave runner went the whole way down California, and then I split the states in thirds, right? And I had an indigenous per- person for each third of the state because you really need to know what you're doing on the water as you well. You mean know. someone who knows the water? You know, yeah. Not like a Native American Indian. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. So, and the other thing, like with, with the paddleboarding thing, was the great white sharks, you know? Uh, we did an interview with the world's leading authority on great white sharks before I did that world record paddle uh, in 2007. And the guy goes on for 45 minutes about all this stuff about sharks. And then he looks at me and he goes, you know what? He goes, at the end of the day, he goes, you probably wouldn't survive the initial hit. And I was like, okay, great. well, first of all, that really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Second of all, we could have had this interview in like two minutes, right? So he said, but the sharks are going to be scared of the wave runners. They won't come anywhere near the wave runners. Mm-hmm. Well, when I uh, took out from Oregon through Crescent City, one of the guys that was the indigenous guy, his name was Ren Knoll. His, his father was Greg Knoll, who was a big wave surfer, the first guy to surf Waimea. They were crab fishermen for 20, 20 years. This guy was a strapping, huge dude. 
and we're paddling, it's completely sunny. It's almost like a bad movie, right? It's completely sunny, the water's tranquil. You hear the music. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this guy's taking his wetsuit off, and I'm talking he has a back, like a silver back, and he starts dancing on the wave runner on his tippy toes. He's like, Whitey, Whitey, Whitey. Like completely hyperventilating, like his voice is all screechy. And I look down and there's like a 17 foot great white shark and it's doing an upside down roll and it was a male. It does an upside down roll like three feet underneath the wave runner. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. oh shit. I'd never seen anything like that, you know? When I started all this stuff, the only reason I wanted to do anything on a paddleboard was um, I was training to learn to surf paddling in canals with all this plastic pollution, and I decided that I'd get involved with that, and that's how I met Laird Hamilton. I saw him in a magazine, I asked my friend, Mickey Munoz, I go, who's this guy? And they go, that's Laird Hamilton, he's one of the best watermen in the world. I go, well, I wanna meet him. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up uh, meeting Laird, and we hit it off immediately, and he said, I go, don't you hate people that um, have ulterior motives? He goes, what? And I go, don't you hate people that want to be your friend for some other reason than wanting to be your friend? He goes, yeah, I don't like that. And I go, well, here's the deal. I go, I don't have any interest in being your friend. I go, but you know, I want you to teach me to stand up paddleboard. He goes, why? So I told him why. I go, there's this plastic in the water. It has all this stuff bad for the humans, bad for the fish. You know, you're an ocean guy. I'm sure you understand that. And so we're in Hawaii at that particular time. He starts eating his food and he goes, you know, Tom Jones, he goes, I guess we could share the aloha spirit with you. And I go, like, take a couple bites of my food. I go, there was Hawaiians everywhere. I go, um, what's that? <laughs> so they all start laughing, like uncontrollably laughing. The layers all, what? I go, well, what's aloha spirit, man? He goes, well, it's, it's sharing information and loving your other brother and blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay. I go, well, let's do that. And so you have to understand, I didn't have much water experience. So he goes, you're going to meet me at Maliko Bay, him and Dave Kalama, another very well-known waterman. He goes, you're going to meet me at Maliko Bay, and we're going to do this downwind run thing, right? So I'm going out, I was like, okay, I go to this bay, and there's no waves at all or anything. Now, mind you, I'd never seen a 20-foot wave ever in my life. So we're cruising out of this bay, and as soon as we go around this rock, the waves are like 20, 30 feet. I'm like... Oh, no, oh this is wrong, <laughs> you know? And just, again, all I do is live outside my comfort zone. Right. So I knew that if I wanted to paddle from Oregon to Mexico, like, I had to do this. So I braved it, I went and I did it, and Laird and Dave, later on, I found out I had a conversation where Dave said, like, hey, should we tell him he probably won't make it? And Laird goes, why are you gonna do that? Like, let the guy try. Mm -hmm. And nobody thought I would make it from Oregon to Mexico on stand-up paddleboard. Stand-up paddleboard was brand spanking new. Nobody even really knew what the hell it was. And that's some of the toughest coastline in the world. What, they, they just thought you would quit, you mean? They thought you I would get die. Injured? Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. You're just getting hit by a rogue wave? Because I mean, you're, you're pedaling outside. Or eaten the, by a shark. Dying. Or like I've been lost at sea a couple times because the fog gets so freaking dense, you can't even see like five feet from you. Yeah, yeah. I got separated from my wave runners, I've got my fog harm, I'm like, whoop, whoop, nothing. I'm like, help, 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 nothing. <laughs> Fascinating. So um, we gotta get uh, wrapping up here because uh, we're running out of time. Okay. What is, um, what's next for you? you? You know, I know the hydrofoil thing, but really what's kind of like the next phase of well, your life? Well, Quit Proof, the brand quit. that I have, Quit Proof, you know? One of the things I really admire about you is, is that you are an amazing person to me in a lot of ways because I've done research and 
the, uh, the ability that you have to communicate with other people in a positive way to a positive end, mm-hmm. you know? And that's sort of what I'm after. Like there's so many of these life coaches that are running around that have like no resume. <laughs> like they, <laughs> Seems to be an epidemic. <laughs> yeah, like they, they know exactly what to say, but they haven't done a damn thing. And I have like this insane resume, right? That's just beyond lengthy and impressive. And I want to learn how to communicate. I want to learn human behavior so I can understand human behavior, so I can help people you know, achieve their dreams, their goals, to, to, to be the most complete contributing human being that there is to the human race. Because I think that there's so much of that not going on you know, that I'd like to be a part of it going on. And, you know, I'd love to, like, become really close with you and learn. You know what I mean? Learn a, a lot of these I'll things. I'll be your Lord Hamilton of Yeah, Canada. you'd be my Yoda, for sure. <laughs> uh, you know, so that's what I want to do. I, wanna, I want to, to use all of this stuff that I've amassed to do good because my life was entire. I should be behind your grandmother at the ready teller to be ho- doing horrible things to her feel great about it, have you read the newspaper the next day and feel sorry for me. Mm-hmm. But I've turned all that on its ear and said, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, abuse is, such, is so insidious and it's so prevalent around yeah. the world yeah. that um, obviously we want to slow that down and turn that around, but regardless, a lot of people are victims of it, and so your story is very inspiring, and I think you can help a lot of people yeah. who have suffered from you know, that childhood abuse. Yeah, because you don't got to let it... Do, the the great thing that I fine. love that you say, and this is, this is what's really, I think, is awesome, what people really need to understand, is that challenges either defeat you or define you, That's right. right? And when you said that, when I started listening to your podcast originally, because my incredible wife goes, you got to listen to this guy. Jennifer's like, you got to listen to him. And that when I heard you say that, I was like, this guy's got his shit together. He knows what he's talking about. Because mm-hmm. they do. Challenging times either defeat you or define you. Mm-hmm. And so I've... And there's re- always challenging times. And there's always challenging yeah, times. So, so let them define you. Yeah, let Lean them define you. into it and, and figure out the, the secret silver right. lining. And, and so, let's put unbeatable mind on my, uh, on my jersey going down to set an, and I'm, to establish another that. world record, right? Because yeah. I don't like breaking world records. I like establishing them. That's why I paddle from Key, uh, Oregon and Mexico, established the first stand-up paddleboard world record, world record. Then I broke it when I paddled from Key West to New York, mm. right? And then this hydrofoil thing is going to be circumnavigating the United States. I'm going to go from Oregon to Mexico, leg one, do the Gulf, leg two, around to Key West, and leg three, go up to... Uh, past New York and circumnavigate on the hydrofoil. Oh, we'll definitely uh, support you in that and sponsor you and um, maybe do a podcast right in the middle of it. (laughs) That'd be great. That'd be fun. When does that kick off? Well, I'm still raising money for it. So I'm going to do a a warm-up deal from Catalina to either Huntington Beach or San Diego. We haven't decided yet this summer. Next summer, I'm going to be doing the Oregon to Mexico regardless. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm in talks with Laird about doing that part of it with me. Mm-hmm. So I'm really hoping that that's going to come together. Uh, so I believe that, that we'll start that off next year. And in the meantime, I'm doing a lot of work on, on learning how human beings behave, how I can possibly help them, mm-hmm. about belief systems, limiting beliefs, cognitive awareness, all this other stuff, uh, so that at the end of the day, I can go into that at the same time, but I'm never going to quit this. Because you're quit proof. 
yeah, I'm never, I'm never gonna, never gonna give up, never gonna give in. Because people told me, you know, like, uh, you know, you're getting older now. You maybe you want to like uh, kind of wind down. I go, don't drag me into your private hell. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> Age so, is in the mind. But anyway, you know, it's an attitude. Well, so people can find you at what's your uh, like website? Yeah, quitproof.com. Uh, if they Google Tom Jones athlete mm -hmm. instead of Tom Jones the singer, there's a lot of Tom Joneses out there, right? Uh, there's not many. How many? There, there's, there's a thing or two though. significant <laughs> ones. Yeah, one you get pelted with underwear, and then the <laughs> second one is like me. So, but the internet does a great job of bragging about me and also connecting people with me. So, okay, I'm looking to do that. I'm uh, looking to get more closely associated with people like you, so that I can learn mm -hmm. uh, and pick your brain and, and so on. Because I think that you're a, a great asset to the human race. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly, I mean, just, I don't bullshit anybody. I just, that's not, I don't do that. So I'm just telling you straight from person to person, I find you to be an incredible asset to the human race and I'm very honored and I feel really privileged to know you and meet you. Wow. Well, man, that's very humbling and um, I think we'll kind of close it off on that note. Okay. <clears throat> so Tom, I'm gonna say this, um, I've really enjoyed this interview. Yeah, I think you're a really good man and I really appreciate you for, um, you know, for taking on the mission of, of helping others who have been uh, suffering from childhood abuse or, you know, the kind of the torturous things that you described. Um, it's an important mission. So, yeah, or just yeah. being a human. Just because being a human. being a human is like insanely challenging. But it I is. think, honestly, Mark, I think that's part of the design. It can be insanely rewarding, but it's, you gotta make the switch from victim to victor, you know? Well said. Bravo, and that's exactly right. And it's a choice, it's a constant. And one of the things I really like that Laird says is that, you know, you have two ways to go in life, up or down, pick one. I love that too. And I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna pick that one. Let's go pick up. up. <laughs> oh yeah, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Right back I appreciate you, brother. Right back so folks, look at that. <clears throat> Thanks very much for joining us. This is the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. I am your host, Mark Devine. Thank you, Mr. Tom Jones. You're very welcome, thank you. Yeah. And uh, until next time, stay focused and Stay quit proof. Yeah, hang tough, stay strong, remain quit proof. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hooyah. Divine out. You've worked hard for what you have your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.